yes, it's a beautiful thing to be supported and uplifted by people who champion you. But if you have the tenacity to be able to embrace your skeptics as much as your supporters, you're going to learn a lot. So that's what true innovation really entails. Do you ever wonder where the produce in your local grocery store comes from? Or how it gets onto the shelves? In many places, and for many crops, the distance between farm and table can be thousands of miles. And, with recent challenges to supply chains, that poses an economic risk for the country and local communities. But it gets even trickier when you consider that demand for food is increasing, yet there's only so much farmland left in the country. Oh, and... With a nation facing a labor shortage with near-record low unemployment, how could we even support more farmland if we had it? This is the complex set of circumstances that Vertical Harvest is aiming to solve, with their combination of disruption to the labor system and innovation to local agriculture. Today, we're talking with Nona Yahya and Caroline Este. These two, along with co-founder Penny McBride, built a scalable, community-based system that helps address food security sustainability, and workforce development in what some may consider an unlikely place, Jackson Hole, Wyoming. From designing a three-story greenhouse, which looks a little bit like glass shipping containers stacked on top of one another, filled with rows and rows of floating greens, to turning community skeptics into their biggest champions and challenging traditional expectations and limitations on the disabled community, they found just the right way to change the world by building a great business. Let's start at the beginning. How did you build a vertical greenhouse business in the middle of Wyoming and grow it into a national enterprise? It's such an evolution, our story. It really came out of a passion for community. As I said, I lived in New York for a long time. I really thought that I would live out the rest of my days in New York. My husband had different thoughts and he dragged me out to this small town in Wyoming, quite beautiful. I quickly realized that he was right, that this is an incredible place. But I think what really intrigued me is that, you know, in terms of communities, New York and Jackson Hole, Wyoming operated as islands and they were really dependent on the sustainability of the systems that allowed them to run. And those systems were driven by people. So I started getting interested in what are the systems that make this community tick? And food, I've always loved food. Um, Food is part of my cultural heritage. It's what brings people together. You know, food is imported to both of these islands. About, you know, 99% of the food that we eat is imported. And so I started working on a residential scale greenhouse for a woman here who was really interested in having a greenhouse that wouldn't fall apart after the first winter. That was really exciting to me um, in terms of aligning form and function in this cold Wyoming winter. And so I also started working with the town of Jackson on projects. Um, We did a climbing park. We did a couple of other things as an architect. Through that, we met Penny McBride, who was really looking to bolster the local food economy at scale. She had heard about me working on a greenhouse. And she's like, you know, I really want to site a greenhouse in Jackson. I don't have a site. I 
I don't know how I'm going to do this, but could you help me? And so I was all in from the very beginning. And that's when we met Caroline. I had been living in Wyoming for the last decade working with young children. And I thought I was going to go in kind of the direction of teaching. So I ended up in Jackson Hole working at a school for students that had disabilities, which then led me into another career path of being an employment facilitator, case manager, and independent provider working with young adults and children with disabilities. Many of the young adults I was working with were aging out of the school system. So typically for people with disabilities, they can stay under the school umbrella until age 21. But after that, it's like, as one of our parents says that has a son with a disability, it's like falling off a cliff. What's next after school? What can we do um, for employment? So at this moment is um, right when I intersected with Nona and Penny, and this idea of vertical harvest came to be. So the idea that we could build a greenhouse, you know, somewhere that not only grew food, but futures, you know, employment in our community was kind of a pain point. We have a very transient community. People don't come to Jackson Hole to build a career. They build their careers on the East or West Coast. They come here to ski. They come here to enjoy the landscape and they go home. But in the meantime, there was a burgeoning local economy that needed people to work. So we thought, what better way to give people an opportunity to not only jobs, but careers. Around that same time, town councilman showed us a piece of property that the town owned that was on the south side of a parking garage. Now, this you couldn't envision a greenhouse on this site very easily. It measured 30 feet wide by 150 feet long. I think he envisioned a plastic hoop house, you know, a temporary shelter that it could extend the four-month growing season and employ a few people. But I think that's where my background as an architect and our real commitment to our mission really drove us forward. And that was really the time that we became vertical farmers. We wanted to grow as much food as possible. We wanted to provide as many jobs as possible. We wanted to do both year round. And the only way to do that viably was to go up. And so that's how we created a three-story greenhouse that now on a tenth of an acre grows the equivalent of 10 acres worth of food. And it employs 40 people, half of which have some sort of intellectual or physical disability. But what we have really done is create a business that sees ability over disability. And that has really built our culture of striving and success and having an impact on our community in many ways. It is really inspiring. Not only are you growing crops vertically, but you're growing the potential of people and the community. Okay, but before we get any further, for someone like me who has no idea what it looks like, how would you explain vertical farming? It's growing indoors and using every square foot that you can to grow crops in a very dense way. So there are many different ways to vertical farm. We use hydroponics, so we deliver our nutrients through water, and we're able to squeeze in very tight spaces a great amount of growing. (laughs) That is innovation at its best. Nona, I'm curious how your career in architecture may have helped pave the way for aligning business opportunities with social impact. You know, I think architecture really touches 
every aspect of our lives. Architecture at its best can be a powerful vehicle for change. And I think from that moment, I was looking at ways that architecture could have impact, could bring communities together. And I think that at their heart, architects are problem solvers. Using that design thinking, that systems thinking was really important to design the business of Vertical Harvest, right? To say every aspect of this business, every every little um, piece of it really affects the whole, the full whole ecosystem. And we were designing a living, breathing machine that it's not only based on the health of the plants, but the people in it. That really was the result of this long journey in education. And once I knew the potential for this to not only fit something that, you know, had an effect on a commu- on an individual community, our own Jackson Hole, but could be a scalable, replicable model that really is creating a new type of civic infrastructure that solves multiple problems, then I get, there was no looking back. Speaking of civic infrastructure that solves multiple problems, Caroline, you began as an educator. Now you find yourself in business. What do you think that your education background could help other people in the business world to learn? You know, I've always been passionate about people. It is ironic to find myself in the throes of business right now. I feel like I've gone to graduate school and gotten my master's in business just in the last six years working at Vertical Harvest. I do think my expertise and my compassion around people and the inclusion of people has been incredibly beneficial to bring to the business world. Obviously, with Vertical Harvest, our model of an inclusive workplace is one of the biggest drivers. It is my vision and my hope that more businesses and more communities see the benefits and the impacts of creating inclusive workplaces. So by the time that I leave this earth, that inclusivity really isn't a word that we use anymore because it's just something that we do. Your vision of diversity, equity, and inclusion is really remarkable, especially as corporate America still seems to be figuring out these initiatives. And this project, based in Jackson, it's even more ambitious. How do you actually pull it off? Yeah, I mean, here we were three women in a very conservative state with a, you know, what most people thought was a crazy idea. <laughs> you know, a three-story farm, that's hard enough. We're going to we're going to grow plants using water, the hydroponic system. We're going to do it in one of the coldest environments in the United States. We're going to operate it year-round and to boot we're going to hire our town's people with intellectual and physical disabilities. And you know what? No, we're not going to phase it. We're going to do it all at once. So that was, you know, a lot for people to swallow. I think in general change is hard. I think that For us, when we look back and the lessons learned from that is you need persistence. You need a mission that people can buy into, that they believe in, not only for yourself, but for others. Because I think in some of the darkest days of even navigating something like snow load in Jackson, you know, where I would go to the building department and they're like, well, this doesn't fit within our rules and we we can't make it fit. And Caroline and I would be like, well, Maybe this is the end. And it was because other people believed so much in what we were doing and needed what we were doing. And, you know, the way that we solved this problem was so important to them that we'd go back to the building department and say, how can we make this happen? This is important to not only us, but the community. 
And I think that started to build some momentum where they really wanted this, right? That this was something that was necessary for our community now. That, that focus on community as an outcome is really critical, partially because I know you guys launched as a public-private partnership. Now, I have to imagine that comes with a lot of extra hoops to jump through. I suspect countless more challenges than any of my previous entrepreneurial endeavors, and most notably public sector scrutiny. Yeah. At the same time, because we were a public-private partnership with the town of Jackson, our plans always went through a public process. That was incredibly difficult because any, any entrepreneur would know putting out a pro forma before it's ready is like the death knell of a startup. And so we would have to, you know, every time we would need some kind of approval or we would have to publish our, our plans. So that brought out some interesting perspectives. Um, one of them was the head of the Tea Party at the time, the vice president of the Tea Party, who was in charge of communications, who's obviously going to every town meeting to make, to understand what public money is being used for. As we were pursuing a, a public grant, came to us and said, no, your plans are nuts. Uh, you're acting like you're a nonprofit, but you're saying you're a for-profit business. I'm going to shut you down. We said, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, this is, this is something that means something to a lot of people. Why don't we talk about this? The first meeting did not go well. And at that point, we probably could have been like, all right, we're going to have to fight this person. But instead, what we decided is let's have lunch and let's continue to have lunch until, you know, we, we work this out. And he turned into our biggest advocate. He came with us for the necessary approvals for our public grants. He came with us to visit the governor. We won that public grant by one vote. And I think we won that vote because he was there. And he said, look, I was a skeptic, but I listened to them and they listened to me. And we, I think we have something that really is worth something here. And I think you should pay attention to it. And so now what Caroline and I say is, Yes, it's a beautiful thing to be supported and uplifted by people who champion you. But if you have the grit, if you have the tenacity to be able to embrace your skeptics as much as your supporters, you're going to learn a lot and you're going to answer the hard questions. So I think that community building is an interesting thing and, and you have to bridge people with different opinions than your own in order to get something big like vertical harvest. That's what true innovation really entails. Yes. I mean, this gets to the heart of exactly what I wanted from Consensus, to talk about innovation as a means of problem solving and social impact. I would also consider your human resources, hiring and training practices incredibly innovative. We hear a lot about jobs these days. It's always what Americans care the most about. You bring a pretty unique perspective to the conversation around workforce. Could you give us that perspective? So, you know, what Vertical Harvest really does is it's a person-centered place. And so when we think of employment, it is, it is people first. Everybody, in my opinion, has the right to work just like they have the right to go to school. And traditionally, people with disabilities were overlooked to even be employed. And if they were looked at for employment, it was um, typically in the departments of food, flowers, and filth. And nothing equivalent to what most people in their, you know, 20s and 30s are working full-time 40 hours a week. It would be, you know, a couple hours here, a couple hours there, not a consistent schedule. You know, 
I found myself surprised by various jobs that our employees undertook and just the the rate at which they excelled. And then putting this in this integrated environment of people and working together and the acceleration of skills across the board for all of our employees has just been amazing. Well, and if I can add to that, Connor, I think that the work we do on a day-to-day basis is how we define ourselves. And I think with all the pressures that Caroline's talking about, you know, there are so many populations in our urban centers, in, in, in our rural communities, where people just have jobs, right? And there's not a potential for career development. And it's in that evolution that takes you to a place where your work is meaningful. That's one of the things that has been so eye-opening about Vertical Harvest, you know, this, this population that historically had barriers to entry, not just to jobs, but almost a complete wall against career development. And so what we've been able to do at Vertical Harvest is provide the opportunity to not only participate in, but to drive this industry and that they will be our leaders of tomorrow. So it really shows that vital importance of what a job can mean to an individual. That is so true. I read this statistic recently that Americans spend an average of 90,000 hours working. I mean, that's remarkable. I certainly identify with my career. And I think that as individuals, we also bring purpose and identity to the company. You actually hit on something I want to explore next, which is the importance of the food economy locally and nationally. As a leading innovator in the fastest growing sector in ag, how do you see the landscape changing? I mean, just to put an exclamation point on the importance of that topic, we saw that the White House has announced they'll be having a food insecurity summit for the first time in 50 years. This is a national concern. I went to the grocery store yesterday and I was I was frankly alarmed with the state of our produce section and I asked, you know, the the person at the checkout I was like what's going on? Like what's happening? And she's like, you know, people need to open their eyes. The distribution channels are not working. Again, Jackson Hole is an island. You know, and a lot of our communities are. I think that, you know, just in terms of nationally, a head of lettuce on average travels 2,000 miles to get to our plates, right? So, you know, we think we're doing something good for ourselves by buying a head of lettuce, but by the time it gets onto our fork, it's bereft of its nutritional and mineral value and taste value. We need a way of reconnecting the farm to the city. I think that's the potential, the beautiful potential of controlled environment agriculture is that we can farm anywhere. And by doing it vertically, we can use urban lots to really say, you could be within farm to fork within 24 hours. You never have to worry about getting a product that is nutritional. You know where it came from. You know the impact it's had. You can feel good about this product. For us, it's not about replacing traditional agriculture. We're always going to farm. That's an important tool in the toolbox. But what other tools can we innovate to make sure that consistency, availability, affordability are there? At Vertical Harvest, we are laser focused on making sure that food deserts don't exist, that availability, accessibility, and affordability are paramount 
It is part of the national infrastructure conversation that we're having. Yes, I love that the infrastructure conversation is including this. And I think strengthening food systems for all communities and ensuring food security feels like systemic change that we need right now. It makes us more resilient, makes us a stronger country. I mean, you've got the most important value systems between jobs and food. It sounds like that's a place you've really been able to get close to universal support from folks. Is that right? Definitely an eye-opening. I mean, because this is a solution on so many levels for communities. Currently, with our expansion plans and, and the municipalities that we are working with, this is a very exciting opportunity because not only are we providing jobs for marginalized populations in communities, we're also solving this problem of local food. That's been really interesting. And, and just in my mind, as I see this expanding and how the different touch points of community can be strengthened, there's so much potential around that. So yeah, the civic infrastructure, the social infrastructure, really empowering people to also then be sustainable and to be able to contribute back to their communities because they've got full-time careers and giving back, whether it's through paying taxes or you know being involved with other community organizations. So I do think the cities are catching on and the municipalities are catching on to how this is a win-win-win. Yes. I mean, no one can argue with food or jobs. <laughs> no. Exactly. <laughs> I, mean, I want to talk a little about where we are today. We've all lived through a really tough time with the pandemic. I'm curious how the pandemic affected your organization, your employees. And you know, I found that a lot of organizational leaders have really been reflective over the last couple of years around their business, around the com communities in which they operate. So I'm curious if you've found any brilliant insights through your reflections over the course of the pandemic and then coming out of it. Well, first of all, I am so proud to say that we never shut our doors during the pandemic. Nona's leadership was incredible. And there were so many unknowns with what COVID was. The intersection of people with disabilities a lot of times have um, compromised immune systems because there's secondary medical issues going on. So there was a lot of fear and a lot of question and a lot of concern, but we were able to go down to a skeleton crew, never shut our doors, were able to continue to produce fresh local produce for our community. And then within a week, we put everybody else on Zoom. And so we continued to engage weekly with learning about growing, with learning about personal development. So, you know, we really, I, the word resilience, that definitely became part of the thread of the fabric of vertical harvest. And although we missed the daily interactions together and got really comfortable and good at Zoom, we grew and strengthened our culture and our company through the pandemic. Yeah, I think it was about clarity for us. We had to be laser focused on the mission and, you know, this idea of growing food, but continuing to grow futures as well. When you test a mission at that level, you come out stronger. And I think, you know, through Caroline's leadership, we pair technology with underserved populations and the result of it is spectacular, right? We were more connected than ever before. You know, nationally, what we all understood is that 
we're at a convergence of not only a health crisis, but an environmental one. And we really saw our model as the ability to not only address the environmental crisis, but for us, we're addressing public health issues, social justice issues, and economic resiliency issues. And that holistic thinking through all the pain of the pandemic, I think as a culture, as a national culture, we're seeing that we have to be intersectional. We can't be siloed. We're all interdependent. And it's through connection that we're going to be able to survive. Right? Everyone always ends up in the kitchen at my house. And food just has this power to bring us together. And I think coming out of the last couple of years, I certainly value that more than ever. But before we go today, I really do want to hear what you've got going on next. Where's Vertical Harvest heading? Sure. We're very excited to announce that we've closed our Series A. It's small relative to some of the Series A's that you see in our industry. There's been a lot of money focused on this. And for us, small is good here. We're we're very focused on the way we're using our money. We have an amazing group of investors. We have expansion plans to replicate at minimum 10 communities in the next five years. We're working right now with Maine, Chicago, Detroit, Providence, Rhode Island. And, you know, for our small farm here in Wyoming, we've had very ambitious plans. Um, We now twice won in, you know, four categories in Fast Company's most innovative ideas and workplaces. As a for-profit business that has really invested in what it means to be in business and you know what what this idea of conscious capitalism can be and i think it's a very exciting place to be right now as you know investing in social and environmental enterprises is gaining interest and popularity and i think that in our replication that's why maybe sometimes we're taking a more measured approach we want to make sure we can back up our claims. We want to make sure that we can really do the good that we envision. And so, you know, we're okay to go slow, but we have very ambitious plans. Well, we love ambitious plans at Consensus. We also love an open mic. So what is the one question that no one ever thinks to ask? The one thing you want to make sure we understand about the work you're doing at Vertical Harvest? This idea around disability and what that exactly means. And I'm using the word disability a lot. We kind of go back and forth between different abilities and people with disabilities. And after polling all of our employees that identify, it was a 50-50 split. But I do believe that we need to label to unlabel words. So I think it would be around the assumptions around what truly an inclusive and integrated workforce means and looks like and achieves the successes that that would be uh, the question and kind of the assumptions that are that have been made and, and that's simply because again integration and inclusion is still very new not only with people with disabilities but other marginalized populations to label in order to unlabel ugh, I love that it sounds like a theme from one of my college classes This trend towards conscious capitalism that Nona just mentioned, it's a really big focus in markets and corporate community right now. It's in the press every day. New funds are being built around environmental, social, governance strategies and investments. Uh, Frankly, I I think that companies that I've seen do it best, that truly do it, 
but do it in ways that can be accountable are companies like yours that are incorporating professional development skills along a variety of marginalized communities. ESG at a corporate level should mean that you care about the holistic labor force. How do you convince the ESG community that this is an issue that belongs in their portfolio? First of all, I would, if I was speaking to another entrepreneur, you know, giving all the whys, there's there's a, a long list of them, but how to do it. I think that's the biggest barrier for people. Like, how do I even tap into this workforce? And going back to, you know, every local community has workforce development. They have channels th- that are funded state and federally. There's those avenues. There's the avenues through the educational institutions. But then I simply, I would, I mean, looking at the numbers, the fact that people with disabilities are identifying as one of as the largest minority population and that it is an issue there are people out there that want to work that are capable of working and when we also look at the effects of people not working and how that taxes are different you know federal benefit systems um how those can be alleviated through more citizens working in their communities and contributing to their communities Well, and Connor, for investors, labor for any kind of farming, traditional or vertical farming is a huge issue. How do you tap into a labor force? And I think, you know, sometimes the barrier to training, right, that that investment in training is what people have to invest in, but it really does pay off, right? Um, It it costs about $30,000 a person to be able to train. So employee transience is very expensive. The population that we're training, as Caroline said, is hungry for work. And so once you are able to pair employment with the individual and and back, then you find like a really good fit. And so it is about understanding and through understanding and investment, you know, you see success. Huge shout out to Nona and Caroline for this inspiring conversation. Consensus in Conversation is hosted by me, Connor Gaughan. The episode is produced by our very own Will Gatchel and Chandler Bromstead. Executive produced by me and Rachel Swaby, with editing from Maddie Zampati. And special thanks to creative director Kate Tucker. Hey.